Good morning. Yeah, it's great to be here. Hey, based upon that introduction, we're going to triple our fees to the Journey Church. Uh, it only makes sense at that inter- You know, I'm, trust me, uh, Christian has been very easy to work with. We work with a lot of pastors that I would honestly say can be a little bit difficult at times. Christian has been wonderful, so uh, it makes it much easier when you have uh, someone who is very willing to be coached and very is open and uh, really actually responds well. So before we jump into the Word, I'd love to pray for us here just once again. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this body. We thank you for this church, the amazing story that's being written here day by day. And Heavenly Father, we pray that in this time, by your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to each heart here. Lord, has, as has already been prayed many times, but Father, we pray that this day would be life-changing for your glory, for your honor, that your name alone would be lifted high. So use this time now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Leonardo Diaz was a mountain climber. And based in the USA, he enjoyed climbing mountains around the country, but his goal was to go to South America to climb the Nevada de Rios in Colombia. And so in May 2002, that wish came true. He had trained and he had worked and he had all of these friends and they had planned to go there to climb this mountain. And so sure enough, they fly into Bogota and they spend a day or two there just to get just a bit more ready, and the big day comes, and they begin to climb this mountain. All the training, all the work, all the preparation, all the exercise was now paying off. Day one was absolutely phenomenal. Spent the night, wake up in the morning. Day two was terrible because a blizzard came in, completely unexpected. It wasn't on the radar, and this blizzard comes in, and it begins to become so bad that this man, Leonardo, becomes actually separated from the group. And they kind of think, well, once the snow stops, it will be able to find each other just because of the tracks in the snow. But the snow comes down so hard that when the snow finally stops, they are completely lost from their friend Leonardo. He, they don't know where he is. So Leonardo is wandering around this mountain. He's completely and hopelessly lost. Now, there's some really good news. He has a cell phone it's fully charged, and he has a strong signal. The bad news is this. It's a prepaid cell phone, like almost everything is in South America. And the night before, he'd been so excited to call back home to say, hey, we're really here, we're going to climb the mountain tomorrow. This is unbelievable that he's completely out of minutes. So when he tries to make calls, nothing goes through. He has no minutes. So he continues to walk around this mountain, and after multiple hours... And everything beginning to run low, no food, there's no water. He sits down and he realizes that he is going to die from hypothermia. He realizes his mind is confused, his speech is slurred, and he realizes he is dying. He, he literally sits down in the snow and prepares to die. As he's sitting there waiting to die, his phone rings. He answers the phone. Mr. Diaz, this is Bell South from Bogota. You're out of minutes. Would you like to buy more minutes? He says, don't hang up, don't hang up. A first in the history of telemarketing. But anyway, he screams, don't hang up. And the person on the other end of the phone realizes what's happening. And they use his phone signal, and they're able to track him down. Seven hours later, they find him on the verge of death, and his life is saved because he got a phone call. 
He was literally on the side of a mountain dying and a phone call saved his life. There's a parallel to this body here today because in many ways we are all on the mountain of life and we're waiting for a call. It's interesting that the scriptures define God's sons and daughters as people who have been called. We're told that in the book of Isaiah, everyone who has been called by my name, chapter 43 and verse 7. So we're on this mountain called life today, and we need to have a call. We need to have a call personally. We need to hear the call very clearly for this body, where we are going from here. And what does this really mean to you? How can this bring about deep change? You guys are about to go through some deep change for a lot of different reasons, because you're in the midst of this this building campaign. And as I drove over here, I went right by the building, and every time I pass by, I'm just always amazed it looks closer and closer. And so you guys are going to go through some big changes very soon. And it's incredibly exciting because I know that you're primed. I know that you're ready. I know that you've been praying. I know that you've been giving. And a lot of things happen when you come to that point where there's this building. So it's interesting because I think that Nehemiah holds a lot of lessons for what we can look at as you move into this building. It's interesting because because in the scriptures, there's lots of stories about building campaigns And there's a lot of stories that we can look at and find some real direction and some inspiration and some hope. So just real quickly, here is the background of the story. Jerusalem, thriving, things seem to be going well. But in 586 BC, the Babylonians come and they overthrow it and they wipe out Jerusalem. And they carry everybody away for 70 years. It's the exile. And so they burn down the walls, they break down the gates. I mean, the whole thing, it's just completely destroyed in the temple, everything. After 70 years, the Persians come in and they wipe out the Babylonians. And they say, I tell you what, you can go back and you can actually rebuild Jerusalem. And so this man Zerubbabel takes back about 50,000 people and they rebuild the temple. They do get that done. And then they start on the gates and on the walls, but they just continue to fail. It just doesn't go well. And it doesn't go well for decades. So the people are terribly discouraged. So after a while, they say, you know what we need to do? We need to send in a pastor. If we have a pastor that leads the whole thing, it'll probably go much better. So Ezra goes, and he leads this building campaign. And Ezra is a great guy, and it's a great story in Scripture, but he does not get the walls built. And so once again, tremendous discouragement. People seem to be very down. And then in 445 B.C., God calls a man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah is not a pastor, he's a layperson, and in one sense in this story, he's a volunteer. Now, he has an amazing job. He's the cupbearer to the king, which means this, that he has got access to Artaxerxes, who at that time is the most powerful king in the entire world. When you're the cupbearer, you essentially control the access to the king. It's almost like you're like the prime minister. So it's a very, very prestigious job. It's amazing that a Jew would rise up that high to have this much power. He lives in a kind of a nice place. He's on Susa in the Persian Gulf in an amazing palace. So you talk about the, I I mean, he just has got this amazing setting. He has amazing amounts of power, drinks the best food, the best wine, all of these things. And yet he begins to hear reports about Jerusalem. And being a Jew, he knows that these are his people. And while he lives in Susa, his, his heart is really about a 1,000 miles away, and it's in Jerusalem. 
So this is a story about a man who writes down his story, and it's really just a journal of how God uses him to rebuild this wall, and then ultimately how God will do more and more to really rebuild broken walls, but not just that, but also broken lives. So it's a beautiful story. So Nehemiah shares with us his insights, his understanding. It's a story about leadership. It's a story about how to be a true servant. It's a story about teamwork. So I'm just going to read one a passage uh, from, from chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. It says this. So he's, he's, he's heard the walls are down. He's very discouraged, so he just weeps and mourns. And he spends some time fasting, but then he prays and says, Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer that your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. It's interesting that nine times in Nehemiah, it says that Nehemiah goes to prayer. He's clearly a man of prayer. He's clearly a man that says, gosh, you know what? This can't be based upon me. I love the fact he starts off and he says, God, you're great. That's God's position. God, you're awesome. That's God's power. God, you keep your covenant of love. Those are God's promises. He claims those things. He's no armchair leader. He's a man of action. So he will go to Jerusalem. He will cast a vision. And he will begin to build. And what failed over and over and over again now for over 70 years will be accomplished in only 52 days. I think this passage is also extremely appropriate because at the very start of the year, actually, Christian talked about Nehemiah. And he had a brick and he had a big sword. Do you remember that? And he talked about the fact that there are some years to kind of fight and some years to kind of build, and this year would be both. And that's absolutely true. This is a building year, but it's a difficult year because it's transition. Any change is hard, even positive change, because it's moving away from the status quo. Anytime we do that in life, it's always going to be hard. And then once you're in the building and you've been there, I believe the Christian is going to actually go through Nehemiah and talk more and more about it. So I think that this is, in one sense, it's a good bridge. But I want to look at a chapter which is absolutely an amazing chapter. I want to look at chapter 3. Now, if you're going through the book of Nehemiah and you come to chapter 3, you probably just skip it because you think it's a lot of names that I can't pronounce. It's like, it's like you know, it's, it's like almost 90 names of people and you don't know who these people are and they've got strange names and so you just, okay, this is a chapter I'm going to skip. But you know what? Chapter 3 has so much. So here's what we're going to do. This might sound like a little bit much in our time, but we're going to look at eight marks of teamwork, eight principles of teamwork from chapter 3, which means we're going to have to go very, very quickly. But I think that these are eight incredibly powerful principles about teamwork. And I think that you need these as you move into a new building. And I think that these will really help you. But these are not just about the building. I believe that these are very much about you you very, very personally. So let's look at eight marks from Nehemiah chapter 3. By the way, if you have your Bible, I really, really encourage you to go to Nehemiah chapter 3. Now, if you don't know where to find the book of Nehemiah, don't feel bad. I've been a pastor for 35 years. I can't find the book of Nehemiah. So Psalms is a big book in the Old Testament. So find Psalms and then go backwards. And before Psalms is Job, before Job is Esther, before Esther, you'll find Nehemiah. So 
If you have your Bible, turn there, or most of you, it's on your phones. I realize that, and so that's much easier. So, Nehemiah chapter 3, eight marks of what it means to really, in one sense, find your place on the wall at this church. So the walls have been broken down. The gates are down. Everything is down except the temple. But the people are in disgrace. They've been shamed. They're in fear. There's opposition. And there are those that don't want the Jews to ever build back up Jerusalem because they fear, well, if they get this place rebuilt, they're going to kind of get their feet back on the ground and things might you know, start to go well again. And they don't want that. So there's a lot of opposition. So the first principle is this. It's awesome to be a part of a team. It's awesome to be a part of a team. Nehemiah is a genius because you have these walls which are about two, you know, two and a half miles around. And so for decades and decades, this project has failed. He does this amazing thing. He says, you know what? We've been viewing this as one massive project. We're not going to do it. We're going to break it down into 41 sections. And then with each section, we're going to actually assign a team, and we're going to assign a team of people that live kind of close to that part of the wall. And so that way, people are going to have a real sense of ownership. You see, being on a team is amazing because it's real cooperation. It's all about collaboration, and that's much more of a motivator than competition. You're working together. So he creates these teams. He creates some teams of some fathers and some daughters. He creates a team of, you know, these guys that, you know, are the big tough guys. He creates a team of the perfume makers. It's incredible how you have such a variety of teams that work on this wall. But you see, this is a project, like any project, like your building project, in which you can't see it as one massive project. There's times when you're going to have to break things down and then begin to actually delegate. Because when Nehemiah begins to delegate, it gives people this real sense of authority. This is true in business or in any part, you know, part of life. There's times in which you have a project that feels overwhelming, and yet you begin to break it down and say, okay, if we do this part by this date, this part by this date, and it becomes much more realistic. He's a management genius when he says, let's put this into 41 pieces and let's create teams. Because it has that sense of, man, this is empowerment. There's no ministry possible apart from team ministry. Point number two, verse one says this, Elisha the high priest and, and his fellow priests went to work and they rebuilt the sheep gate. I love that. So the principle is no job is beneath servant leaders. No job is beneath servant leaders. This says Elisha the high priest went to work. Now, how many high priests are there? There's one. There's one high priest. He's the guy that gets to go into the temple. and the, I mean, he's the guy that gets to do the real deep spiritual things on behalf of the Jews. This is an incredible role. He's almost like the Pope in one sense, or I should say the Pope is almost like him. He's the high priest. Now, if you were the high priest, wouldn't you think that your job would be to kind of walk around the wall and just pat people on the back and say, ah, you're doing a great job. Keep going, man. I love the fact that the high priest, it says he went to work, the high priest. In other words, no matter who you might be spiritually, no job is beneath your calling. There's no job. It's like, well, you know what? I only do these types of jobs, and these jobs over here are just a little bit mundane, and I want to leave those for the lesser people. That's not the way it works. 
when you are truly a servant leader, there is no job beneath you. Which means if you're a pastor at the church, this church, if you're an elder at the church, there's going to be times in the new building where there's going to be some hard jobs that feel like, man, these aren't very fun. But you know what? It's not beneath you. Because no matter who you are, God calls us to be true, true servant leaders. I love the fact Elisha went to work and he rebuilt it. Number three, one of my favorites. No one has the right to become an antagonist. Nobody has the right to become an antagonist. Verse five says this. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Verse six is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Not for what it says, but for what it doesn't say. I love the fact that verse six does not say, so they felt so bad about the whole situation that they formed a committee to find out why these people didn't want to be involved in work. And they you know, began to do this research on, well, here's a little group of people that were really upset about this whole building project and they didn't want to be involved in it. So I love the fact it just goes on. It's almost like Nehemiah says, if you kind of read between the lines, it's almost like he says, hey, listen, I've got 40 and a half teams excited to work. I've got one small group that doesn't want to work. You know what? They're not going to set the agenda. The antagonists love to set the agenda. You know, every church has got antagonists. Every little league team has got antagonists. Every PTA, every school board, every neighborhood, there's always that antagonist that wants to make, you know, always everything is negative. You don't give anybody the benefit of the doubt. Everything is wrong. In the church, they're in the church. It breaks my heart. You walk in, it's like they have a tube that they attach to your heart. It's like they just suck the joy right out of you. It's like, oh my gosh, there's that person every time I see them. If I think that they're a joy sucker, and maybe they, maybe they do love Jesus, but, but their life, I don't know what's going on. You, you know what I just pray? Lord, take them home. <laughs> now listen, you, you might think that sounds mean, that's not mean. They'll be happier, right? Right? Follow me here. You'll be happier. Probably their spouse will be. It's a win-win for everybody. That's not a mean prayer. Lord, take them home. Listen to me. No amount of money that you gave to this building campaign bought you the right to become an antagonist. No amount of time that you give to this church buys you the right to become an antagonist. If you're an antagonist, stop it. Stop it. You don't have that right. You don't have that right. Black, I got quiet. Man, I know how to quiet a group down. All right. But don't be that antagonist. They're everywhere. You have the right to ask hard questions, but there's a fine line between asking hard questions which we all have the right to do, and then becoming the person that it's always negative. You're oversensitive. It's just always, everything is always wrong and you're just frustrated with everything. You know those type of people? We all do. Number four, real leadership is not dictated, dictated by the prestige of the job. Now, picture these walls of Jerusalem. There are 10 gates all the way around. There are some gates that are very prestigious gates, like the Sheep Gate is a very, that's a very popular gate. Why? Because it's right by the temple. And when you do like your sacrifices, you bring the sheep in the Sheep Gate. So as you 
go around, you have the sheep gate and the horse gate and the valley gate and the water gate. That's not a joke. There really is a water gate. And you have the fish gate and, you know, all the way. And in the very south of Jerusalem, you have the dung gate. Now, what do you think the dung gate was used for? You don't have to be a genius to know what the dung gate was used for. It's where the refuse and all the trash and everything else, it went out of that gate because you're not going to get that stuff close to the sheep gate. So the dung gate is the, it's the worst gate. Now, can you imagine when Nehemiah is going through, okay, uh, sheep gate and this group, you've got the valley gate, this group, you've got the fish gate, this group, you've got the old gate, this group. Dude, I'm sorry, you got the dung gates. Verse 14, the dung gate was repaired by Malchijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Bethhek Karim. He rebuilt it and put its doors, bolts, and bars in place. His dad is the ruler of the district of Beth Hekarim. Well, why, why is that important? Because that's the highest point in all of Jerusalem. So if there's a battle, if there's a war, you're going to go there because you always want to fight from the highest point. In other words, his dad is kind of a big deal. Do you think that he might have thought, whoa, 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 do you know who my dad is? Dungate? I don't think so. I mean, my dad's a big shot, but we've done a lot around here. My dad's got some authority. I'm not going to work on the dung gate. I love the fact it says he went to work. His team goes to work on the dung gate. Listen, every church has got sheep gate jobs. Every church has got dung gate jobs. If you work in the nursery here, that might literally be a dung gate job at times, you know? <laughs> Listen, there's going to be times here in which everybody is going to have to say, man, there, there's a dung gate job and I've got to do it. There's going to be some things in which you might be inconvenienced about. This church is going to have to add services. I know that when you go into a building that has got that type of visibility, you're going to have to add services. Things are going to have to be different. You might have to go at a different time. You might have to change some things. You might have to, like, adjust your schedule. That's okay. There's sacrifices all the way around. There's times in which you might have a job and you might think, man, I was asked to do this really important thing, and that's really cool, and that's kind of like a sheep gate job. There's times in which you might be asked to do something you might think, I don't think so. That's kind of a dung gate job. Listen, the wall does not get rebuilt unless somebody repairs the dung gate. I want to meet this guy one day. He's a guy of humility. His team works on the dung gate. Yeah, you have Elisha on the sheep gate with his team. But every job has to be done, and this is an incredibly important job. Number five, in all you do, serve with zeal. So Nehemiah is walking around. It's a journal, so he wants to just write down the names of the teams and the names of the individuals. And so this team and this guy, and so he just, he walks around the wall. And, okay, this guy's working on this part of the wall. Here's this guy working on this part of the wall. And then we come to verse 20. Next to him, Baruch, son of Zebedee zealously repaired another section from the angle of the house of the entrance of Elisha, the high priest. This is the only guy that has a name that has anything attached like that. It's amazing. This guy works, this guy works, this guy works, this guy zealously works. What's he doing? I mean, aren't you curious? What's he doing to make Nehemiah say he zealously repaired this part of the wall? It's a wall. It's menial labor. He's rebuilding a wall. So, I mean, what's he doing? Is, is he singing? Is he humming? Is he kind of got a little, I don't know. I, don't, I can't even imagine what he's doing. 
But there's something about the way that he's working. He's working zealously. I want to start a campaign in America to get dads to drive on more field trips for kids in grade school. I think it's a jip that a lot of times the moms are expected to drive and the dads don't get to drive. That's wrong. So my kids have had this trip years and years ago, and I'm like, I want to drive on a field trip or two throughout the year. You know what? That's just, man, I want to be just more and more actually engaged with my kids. So I look through the trips and the things I can drive on, and then it says, field trip to watch them build the Grand Prix at the car factory up in KCK. I'm like, we're going to go watch them build the Grand Prix. I'm driving on that field trip. That sounds amazing. So I drove the kids, and we had this great time. And if you've ever watched them build a car, I mean, just absolutely fascinating. And this plant was, I mean, from start to finish. I mean, they, I mean, from start to finish. They form, they just, you know, form the frame. And then you go through the line, and they're, you know, they start to drop in parts of the car. They drop in the seats. They drop in the engine. You're just, this line goes on forever, and you're just walking this line, seeing hundreds of people work on this car. It's just this amazing process. Then we came to the guy that put this little thing that said Grand Prix on the right front of the car. So he's got this big machine, and so here comes the car, you know, down the line, and this guy lines up, you know, this big, big machine, and all of us are just old, you know, we just thought it would just be nice to watch him. So he lines it up, and this is exactly what happens. What? What? I turned to a guy that worked next to him on the line and I said, that was just for the kids, right? And the guy said, no. (laughs) I so wish that was for the kids. Every car, every day. I said, you're lying. He said, oh no, I wish I was lying. He said, every car, every day. I said, so he just stood back and watched this guy. Every car that came down, you would line it up. And he would just do this celebration and scream. And just, yeah! So at the end of the day, we sit down with, with the kids and, okay, we saw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of workers. Does anybody stand out to you kids? Oh, yeah. The guy that put the little Grand Prix on the right front of the car. Why does he stand out? He was so enthusiastic. He loved his job. He worked with zeal. You know, be passionate about what God calls you to. You don't have to go to that extreme. But when God calls you to do something, do it with zeal. Do it with a passion. Do it knowing that you've been called by God. Number six, we're going fast here. Let me jump back just real quickly, cheat for just a second, and jump back into chapter two and verse 19. Because in chapter two and verse 19, and then all throughout chapter four and five, we see there's these three yahoos, Sanballat, Geshem, Tobiah, who begin to create this, this opposition. And they say, you know, Nehemiah, he shouldn't be doing this. This is a bad idea. And they come to a point where they begin to threaten his life. And they say, we're going to take him out. They do everything they can to shut down the whole project, which is why they have to work with bricks in one hand and swords in the other hand, because there's this threat. Here's a basic principle. Opposition does not mean that God is not in the project. When there's opposition, it doesn't mean, okay, God can't be in this. So you're about to move into the building and some guy comes in and he inspects everything and he says, you know what, that light fixture's not right. You're not gonna get the uh, permit and so you can't move in for for, for like another month. Don't say, well, clearly God is not. Clearly we are out, out of God's will. 
we should have done this project because, gosh, we have all this opposition now. That's crazy. Listen, when you do things that God wants you to do, there will be opposition. That's just a part of life. When you do what God wants you to do, there's going to be some difficulties. It does not mean that God is not in the project. So we could go throughout Scripture and find so many times in which there's difficulties. Jacob, for the first time in his life, obeys God and finally goes home and does exactly what God says. And what happened? God meets him and he literally beats him up, right? Joseph is in prison, but he's right in the middle of God's will. Sometimes you can be in a dank, dark, damp prison and you can be right in the middle of God's will. And you can be out of prison enjoying freedom and you can be absolutely out of God's will. Hard things, hard times does not mean that God is not in the project. Seven, leaders watch each other's backs. Christian talked about this a lot at the start of the year. I love the fact that 26 times in this passage, it says they were next to each other. They were watching each other's backs. I'm next to you. Man, I've, I've got your back. You see, here's the basics. We need each other. God has created you to need each other. September 5th, 1989, there's a terrible car wreck. A car in the mountains loses control and plunges off of a cliff, plunges 70 feet, crashes below, and everybody in the car lives. I heard that story and I thought, wait, what? How? That's, that's impossible. Here's the story. It was not a van. It was not a big, big SUV. It was just like a normal-sized car, which not many people have those anymore, but it was just a normal-sized car. There were 14 people in the car. Now, back in the old days, you know, you used to kind of cram people in and we're going to put some on the floorboard and some. They were just completely crammed in the car. 11 of them were children. Because they were crammed in the car so tightly, they acted as shock absorbers for each other. And the pain and the impact, even though there were lots of broken bones, everybody lived. Because of the fact that they acted like shock absorbers for each other, no one person took the brunt of the pain and they were all able to live. And the experts said, if there would have been like around 11 people in the car or less, everyone would have likely died. The car was full. So here's my question for you. Who's in your car? Everybody will have a crash in life or two or three or four or five. There's just hard times in life. I mean, it might not be you. It might be be like a literal accident. It might be you're told that you have cancer. It might be a spouse walks out. We don't know what it might be. Everybody will have crashes in life. Who is in your car? Because woe to the person who crashes and they are alone. We need each other. As we go into a new building, we need each other. We have to watch each other's backs. Eighth and finally, be motivated by the gospel. You see, we could take a lot more time on this point, but let me just say very briefly, everything in chapter three points to Jesus. I wish we had time to unpack everything. Everything in Nehemiah chapter three points to Jesus. Hebrews tells us Jesus is our high priest. Jesus will wash the feet of his 12 disciples showing great, great, great humility. 
He was despised and rejected by the antagonists. There was opposition in Christ's life. Isaiah 53, he is rejected. He's despised. Jesus Christ was crucified on a dunghill. We're told in the book, uh, book of Isaiah that God will accomplish things for you and it will be his zeal which accomplishes things for you. We're told that Jesus Christ is closer than a brother. Jesus Christ is watching our backs. You see, the more and more that you understand the true gospel and the function of the gospel in your heart, you understand that that's what brings true transformation. You see, Nehemiah left a palace to go work in Jerusalem. He wept over Jerusalem. He fasted, he prayed. Jesus Christ left the ultimate palace and came and he was crucified in Jerusalem. Luke chapter 19, he weeps over Jerusalem. He wept over it. His heart was broken over Jerusalem. You see, if you think that this message is about, you know, I need to be a bit more like, you know, Nehemiah. I need to really work harder and harder. That'll only lead to great frustration. Because the message is, there is one who came that was a greater Nehemiah. Everything in Nehemiah points to the greater Nehemiah. And that greater Nehemiah is ultimately the rebuilder of broken walls, but also broken lives. Jesus Christ came to bring deep life transformation. People will experience that in your new building, but we're praying that you would experience that even today, the transformation that God's grace can bring to you. Let's pray together.